Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the future mayor of San Francisco, and any poll that tells you otherwise is fake news. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Steve Hilton, one of my favorite people in Silicon Valley because he's funny, the CEO and co-founder of CrowdPack, a platform that tries to make it easier to learn about and get involved in politics. Steve was previously a senior advisor to British Prime Minister David Cameron, and he's apparently the bad boy of British politics. And last year, he signed on to become a contributor at Fox News, my least favorite network, where he is working on a show called The Next Revolution. I, we have so much to talk about. Steve, welcome to Rico Decon, and brave for you to come here. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about all yeah, that. Yes, going to be where, great. Where do you want to start with uh, all that menu of a menu of things. options? There's so many things we can talk. Did we mention your British? Uh, so let's talk yeah, about I can your do background. That. British, 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 really plummy, very. I can snotty. say British. British. All right. So let's talk about your background before you got here, because you've been living in Silicon Valley for a while, and we'll explain why and various reasons. But explain your background. How you? Someone called you the Carl Rove of British politics, which is I don't think is a compliment, but I'm not clear. But you've been involved in British politics for most yeah. of your career. Yeah, I, in terms of background, but that word makes me think I need to correct something very important, which is, <laughs> although in the terms of being a citizen, mm-hmm. I am British. I'm actually Hungarian. That's okay. a very important thing. All right, okay. That probably informs a lot. So, All right, uh, my, okay. Both my parents are Hungarian. Mm-hmm. They were um, refugees, mm-hmm. uh, arrived in England. Right. That's where I was born. Mm-hmm. It's true that um, that comparison, that Karl Rove comparison has been made. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is that... Um, when I worked, the, the person I worked for was David Cameron, mm-hmm. and he worked both when he was leader of the opposition in the UK, mm-hmm. and then later on in government. Right. And I think the difference is that I, I um, although I definitely got involved in things like planning a campaign and the strategy and mm-hmm. communications and all the things you'd, you'd expect, I, my real focus was policy. Right. And in Downing Street, I really was basically head of domestic policy. So I was mm-hmm. kind of running the implementation. So you're actually governing. Well, trying to, trying to um, exactly. Yeah. Although there's a whole story about how frustrating I found that and, yeah. and how that informed what I now, you know, leaving and reflecting right. on what went wrong. But let's give people your background. You went to school where? Uh, Oxford. Oxford, of course. Um, and yeah. you you had been interested in politics your whole life or what was what I got was pretty. You it's interesting. I, I clearly was because the course that I took was called Philosophy, Politics and Economics. Mm-hmm. It's called PPE. That's how they talk about it in the UK. There's a mm-hmm. great piece in The Guardian recently about how disgustingly pervasive that degree is right. amongst kind of everyone that has seen it, yeah. basically, exactly. Um, so I did that. And then prior to that, I guess I must have been interested. I do, I do remember taking an interest. And I think actually the Hungarian background does come into it to a certain extent. I remember visiting our family in Hungary. Mm-hmm. All our families there, my, my parents were in the, as I say, they came to the UK and I was born there. Um, my stepfather also was Hungarian. He's mm-hmm. a refugee, fled across the border. So we went back to see the family. And, and a lot of that conversation was about the difference between life under communism and right. the life we were experiencing in the West and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I guess from an early age, I was exposed to that kind of discussion. But then um, I'm just trying to remember, actually, my first job out of university was, in fact, in politics. I mm-hmm. worked at the headquarters of the Conservative Party in the UK. Mm-hmm. And why the Conservative Party? What moved I th- you? I think it was partly that... You look like very, a Democrat, that's why. Well, there you go. I think that um, a lot, <laughs> I've had that a lot. When my book came out in the UK, mm-hmm. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called More Human. Mm-hmm. And um, it was right in the middle of the leadership election mm-hmm. for the British Labour Party. Right. It was actually won by Jeremy Corbyn, who right. many have compared to the sort of Bernie Sanders of the right. UK. And during that period, my book came out and... and quite a fair proportion of the reviews suggested that on the basis of what I'd written in the book, I ought to run for the leadership of the Labour Party. Right, 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 exactly. I do tend to sort of confound these categories, but I think that it was a combination. Why why the Conservatives right at the beginning? I think partly it was because of this really general philosophical association that, that the left is bad because the left is you know, very roughly speaking, what my family were experiencing in Hungary. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's no comparison between uh, the left in in the West at the time and and, and communism. But nevertheless, there was a sort of sense Mm -hmm. that the left is worse than the right. Big government, too much meddling. But I think really it was much more personal and direct than that. My stepfather, 
worked in construction. He he actually fled across the border as a refugee in Hungary in, in 1956 when the Soviets invaded. Mm-hmm. And he and a couple of his friends literally, you know, ran across the fields and climbed over barbed wire fences and ended up as refugees. And he hadn't really been, uh, he, he was from a small village in Hungary and, and hadn't had much of an education at all and certainly didn't, but he ended up in England in a refugee camp, didn't speak English, got a job on a construction site and that made his career as a builder, as a, a working in construction. And I remember really clearly all the way through the 1980s when Mrs. Thatcher was the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. this pretty kind of constant drumbeat that she's for us because she's for working people mm-hmm. and the Conservatives are for working people. Mm-hmm. And the the Labour Party are for people who don't want to work and get welfare. And I think right. that's just you know growing up. Although that's she something... was pretty tough on the workers. Well, yeah, in in some, I mean, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. a really interesting discussion. Yeah. I think highly relevant to where we are in American politics right. today. Which actually, we're gonna get to. but th- I think that that kind that of formed you. I think so. The idea, and so you immediately worked for a conservative politician, or what? What did you do? Well, it's much more. It's a much smaller country, much more mm-hmm. centralized. So it's a little bit, I guess, like getting a internship for a member of Congress, something mm-hmm. like that, except this was the party headquarters and in the very centralized UK system, that was the heart of things. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of amazing. It was in my, uh, in the, in the uh, between my second and third year at university, I got a summer internship and ended up, for example, uh, preparing the weekend reading for the prime minister, for mm-hmm. Mrs. Thatcher. She liked to wow. read things over the weekend that were not particularly political and, right. you know, articles about science and whatever. Right. And that was one of the jobs I had. And wow. I literally had, you know, aged whatever, 18. I had mm-hmm. to cut out these pieces in the days of a photocopier and whatever, mm-hmm. get, cut it wow. out, put it together, huh. and then literally physically walk it over to 10 Downing Street and deliver it. Wow. It's like an amazing that experience. Amazing and, and that I had a, a job in Congress working for Senator S.I. Hayakawa, who happened to be a Republican, oddly enough, and I'm not. But I would keep him awake during briefings. That's what I would just hit him. <laughs> like, so I, I know that kind of job. It was amazing. And at yeah. the, 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 the end it of it, fun. the end of that summer, they said to me, you know, what are you planning to do after you graduate? Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in working here? Um, why don't you apply? I mean, it's kind of random. That's how right. it happened. And so, well, that, in fact, even before that, the whole thing was random because the reason I got the internship was that I remember seeing one, a political ad. In, in the UK, you don't have political ads that you can pay mm-hmm. for as here. You have this kind of allocated time sure. on all the channels. And I remember they're called party political broadcasts. I remember randomly watching one or seeing one before the news. And at the end of it, I, this was a, I remember really clearly, it must have been quite formative because it was like now, what, 30 odd years ago. The guy who was the chairman of the party, mm-hmm. very plummy British mm-hmm. accent, saying, if you agree with us, write to me, Peter Brook, at Conservative Party headquarters. Mm-hmm. And I really remember that. And I thought, yeah, actually, I'm going to write. I'm going to write. Maybe they have summer jobs that are more interesting right. than the incredibly boring kind of washing up in restaurants that I'd been doing right. to earn a bit of money in previous uh, vacations. I thought, actually, let, let's try to do something interesting. Maybe they got a job. I wrote them a letter. That's how I got into it. And you started doing what? You started just doing basic politics learning, right? How to yeah. Do, and how then, to and then, well, then they got me back and I did an interview and I got a job. And then uh, that was, I guess, 1990. Mm-hmm. It was the last year of Margaret Thatcher being prime minister. And I was there work. And then there's a bunch of us that were there working together and this is where the kind of disgusting ruling elite incestuousness argument comes from that I rail against in so much of what I say, because mm-hmm. in that group of us working there in 1990, there was David Cameron, mm-hmm. uh, who became prime minister, George Osborne, who became the treasury secretary, Edward Llewellyn, who became the prime minister's chief of staff, mm-hmm. Rachel Whetstone, who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of us uh, that worked together and then went off and did different things. Right. And then ended up coming together around David Cameron's leadership campaign. Sure. So you were young Turks then, or whatever they call them. I think they lit, I'm afraid they literally called us that. Oh, they did. Uh-oh. Yes, I think oh, there's God. some terrible piece somewhere that you'll probably find a really embarrassing uh-huh, photo. picture of me. Right, right, right. So what was your goal? Was to run a campaign? Or what was I just the found trajectory? It, you know, I just found it interesting. Right. It was just, I, was, I was just, you know, 20 out of university. I was really... And what did you want to do? What did you want to do? Change government or? Yeah, I I felt that, well, I wanted to help the people that I thought were doing good Mm -hmm. at that time. And I particularly was inspired by the guy that came after Margaret Thatcher, who was was Prime Minister John Major, although Mm -hmm. I now subsequently disagree with him on a lot of things. But at the time, I thought his story was really cool. You know, Mm -hmm. he had an incredibly humble background, Mm -hmm. very interesting, unexpected background and, and sort of rose through the ranks to become 
prime minister. And, right. and it was just a great story of social mobility. And I thought he was, and, and the way he, he kind of, a little bit like, I think the intention, I don't know if the reality of, of the first President Bush after Reagan, right. trying to kind of soften right. the contours of what the, what the right stood for. And, and, and I really loved that, actually. I remember I found it really inspiring. Right. And then Tony Blair. Yeah, that's right. Well, then, that, of course, that turned into a complete disaster. Right. That's what I mean. John Major was. In, yeah. John Major, total disaster. Right. Um, Same thing with George Bush. Exactly. Uh, to Bill I, Clinton. But then I can't remember what happened. I'm just trying to piece together the story. So then, um, oh, I remember what happened. There's a big formative thing, which is that just, again, pretty randomly, the, the role that I was assigned in the first election campaign that I was there for was to be the kind of connection between the party kind of research office and, and the kind of policy team and the ad agency that did the campaign, right? which was a company called Saatchi & Saatchi, mm-hmm. which is still around today sure. in, in one form, mm-hmm. but certainly not the company that it was then. It was still the company run by the founders, Morris and Charles mm-hmm. Saatchi. Mm-hmm. Um, an American audience won't, won't know them that well, but they're incredibly well known Very much so. in mm-hmm. the UK mm-hmm. uh, because they had bas- they were really associated with electing Margaret Thatcher three times in a row. Right. And doing some of the biggest, most famous ad campaigns, British Airways, creating these amazing brands and the the heyday of Mm -hmm. British advertising. And because they were, by that time, they're sitting on top of a really big company, Mm -hmm. global company, and hardly got involved in client work Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis. But because this was the election and it was the prime minister, they were really involved. Mm -hmm. And and I had, again, this incredible opportunity to meet them. To figure out. And literally work with them every day. These incredible... People, especially Charles, you know, both of them actually in different ways. I just found incredibly inspiring, and I just learned so much mm-hmm. um, being with them. And at the end of that experience, they offered me a job ah, at Saatchi and Saatchi, so, so I went off to do that. So you learned ab- the dark arts of advertising, exactly. And yeah. so part of my time, I worked. I actually literally worked on on the British Airways account and learned the sort of basics of you mm-hmm. know right at the bottom of the ladder in the, in the company, learning how how to make ads and do marketing strategies and all of that. But the other reason they hired me was to take that um, experience of running election campaigns in the UK and try and leverage that through their international agency network mm-hmm. and bring the kind of expert from the UK right. to other countries. Other countries yeah. So they set up this division with this sort of hysterically grand title. I think it was called so Saatchi and Saatchi Government Communications mm-hmm. Worldwide. Ah, which is basically me, yeah. like some 20-year-old kid. <laughs> um, and they literally, but it was amazing. And you again, advised people on how to... Yes, and it was amazing. We went around the world and did elections, including most of the countries of Europe. Right. A lot, And it was a very exciting time because of the fall of communism. Right. And so we worked in most of the countries in Eastern Europe, including Hungary, which was right. a thrill for me. Right. I'd go back, you know, my, my sort of family down in a small town in the south of Hungary couldn't believe that I was now having meetings. So with. I think you're like the Sandra Bullock character in Our Brand is Crisis, right? <laughs> a little bit <laughs> like that. I, don't, I, I, I enjoyed that. I can't remember he what aspects crazy of South the American craziness, country. exactly, the, 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 the kind of characteristics. How I many dictators I you got elected? No, but we did work for Boris Yeltsin. Oh wow! In in Russia, Yikes. we did the first democratic yeah, election he was in a Russia. Huge success. Yeah, that, that didn't went, work out so well. Yeah, that was great. Exactly, <laughs> it was amazing fun. And um, other than that, other than Boris Yeltsin, no actual dictators. No, no, not yet, not yet, <laughs> exactly. not yet. There's always time. Time. So you then got hooked up with Cameron, and this was the this. Well, actually, no. Before go- that, there was an intervening thing. I'll try and do it quickly, sure, which right. is that then and the, basically I was there at Sarge's, and they gave me all the kind of weird stuff that mm-hmm. wasn't commercial. And one of them was uh, to work with the Commission for Racial Equality mm-hmm. on an anti-racism campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's and I was working with them on that. And actually during that process of thinking about how we combat racism mm-hmm. through marketing, I just had this, I came to this view that we could do a nice campaign and they could spend money on putting it up on TV and billboards and whatever. But really that issue of, fighting racism was just so much deeper than a few ads would ever be able to tackle. And I just came to the view that, that one of the ways we might go about that would be not just kind of... And in fact, what it was was that we were, we were trying to get um, some of the Saatchi clients to give, you know, to donate right, airtime yeah, yeah. and all that kind of right. stuff. And then I thought, you know what, it's actually... Okay, that's fine and, and the perfectly nice thing to do. But what really would do much more good was if we actually 
got into the heart of all those big clients and got them to change their behavior, their hiring practices, mm -hmm. the way they make their own ads, the kind of leadership they have. You know, there's so many ways in which sure. these brands touch uh, culture and society. Mm -hmm. Just giving a few... A uh, few bits of airtime or even money to an anti-racism campaign that's kind of it's, not the, here, it's not the same thing. So that really took me to my next move, which was to create. And actually, I left Sarchus and we and with a, with a, a colleague and, and a good friend now from there, we created a company designed to try and um, work with brands to to make them vehicles for social change. Social change. And right. th so we started a little company called Good Business. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did for the next kind of seven or eight years, which was. And actually, kind of stumbled into this field that was then emerging of corporate responsibility. Corporate responsibility and using social media and everything else. Exactly. So doing. we were doing that in the sort of early '90s, mid '90s, through till um, through, actually, and then through till David Cameron's um, decision to run for leadership. So that was really what I spent most of my time on—that intersection between business, right. social issues, philanthropy. And all of that. Again, it was like really interesting. And then you worked on the campaign. And yes, but before became... that, one other thing we did oh was start goodness. a restaurant. <laughs> okay. Because we'll we, had this, we had this obsession that, um, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs maybe, or entrepreneurial people have, mm -hmm. which is who, who perhaps work in agencies, mm -hmm. which is, well, it's all very nice to do this stuff, which is working for other companies. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we were making you decent money. Thing. We want to do our own business. Right. And so we had this notion of a brand mm -hmm. called Good that would have a bit like Vir the comparison we had with like with good Virgin, right, like yeah. good this, good, so we're going to do good books and good work. And all of them would have, would be obviously socially and environmentally responsible, but also really be mm -hmm. campaigners for social change sure. through everything that they did. Mm -hmm. And that was our big idea. Now I can and, see how crowd pack this is. Well, then what was so ridiculous about that was that completely randomly, the first thing that we did was the most stupid possible thing you could do, which is open a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Like everyone said, are you crazy? Like most of these restaurants, you know, close yeah. within, you know, exactly. And it's so complicated. You got to be. And so we were literally running a consulting firm with big clients like, you know, Coca-Cola, McDonald's mm -hmm. and Nike and whatever, um, at the same time as a restaurant in West London that was trying to uh, source organic, uh, right. sustainable food. And, and we had a job training program for local kids from, you know, we mm -hmm. didn't, you know, gave them literacy training and all this kind of stuff. And, it was going to be cheap so that it wasn't kind of exclusive just for the rich people. You know what I mean? The yeah. incredible you yeah. know, burdens we put on ourselves. Yeah. You're not um, really conservative. I mean, you're almost like a lesbian. Well, um, maybe, so well you know, I'm, if, if there's any, anyway, I'm not going to get that. But the <laughs> thing you're, is. You're that, a San Francisco lesbian, just so you know. Um, <laughs> so, but then you work for David Cameron. Then. Yeah. And then what, and then during that whole time that we, we uh, that I described. I got to get you to James. David Cameron. Cameron. Yeah, exactly. David, James well, James Cameron, Cameron I, you know, maybe that's a whole other connection yeah. I don't even know about. But David Cameron during that period was working his way up in politics he got elected to parliament right the conservatives continued to lose elections to tony blair mm -hmm. and then by the time of 2005 mm -hmm. uh, which was i think was it the third or fourth time that they lost david cameron had got quite senior and after the election it was that kind of moment of let's rethink mm -hmm. this you know and, right. and he ran on a really aggressive yeah. platform of Changing the Conservative yes, Party, absolutely. making it and changing it to what? What was the well, thinking? Well, I mean, the, it was not by us, but it was described as modernization. Right. Um, and so for, they were hip conservatives. Well, it was more to me. It was like what when I, that was like me and him and George Osborne really kind of d did that all together. Mm -hmm. uh, right at the beginning, when the, we hardly had a team, and it was just you know right you know in the, in the actual election to become the leader, and it was about. Um, Look, the, the position of the British Conservatives at that time was very similar to what people might think the Republicans are like now, basically seen as the party of old white people, mm -hmm. the party of the rich, the party that just doesn't care about, doesn't understand the modern world, right. hostile to environmental causes, to gender equality, to, you know, mm -hmm. like completely kind of backward looking on, on sexuality, you know, all those things applied to the British Conservatives. And we're basically trying to get rid of that baggage and present... A, a, new, modern, a modern, a modern conservative body that that would apply our conservative principles of believe, you know, trusting people, uh, sharing responsibility, uh, decentralizing power, all of the kind of philosophical basis of conservatism. Say we can apply that to the things that are problems for people today. For example, work-life balance, dealing with the causes of poverty, mm -hmm. etc. Right. So that was what we were trying to do. What you were trying to do, and then you stayed there for how long? Well, we because you, you have the parliamentary system. So you're, you, he was elected leader of the opposition basically at the end of two thousand and five. Mm -hmm. And the next election was 2010. So you have four years, very different to here, where right. the candidate sort of comes together no, right they to were the around, end. Yeah. So you have four years, of, which is actually really good time to really think through your platform. strategy, your platform, the policy agenda. So we spent four years doing that. And then the elections were 2010. And then he's prime minister and I'm in Downing Street as senior advisor. And what did you do there? 
I can't believe that you were running a government, but well, I, well, I mean, you know, of course that. Well, I wasn't, and that, right. in a way, that's the problem. Yeah, for me, anyway, because yeah. one of the things I learned about myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> looking back on it, uh, was that I'm not particularly, you know, I, I, you know, I had very strong views, mm-hmm. and I thought that the platform that we had crafted together was what we would we were intending to do. Right. Oh, right. There you go. Your face tells the story. If only people could see. Well, there you are. And so I just found that period, of course, it was amazing to be right at the heart of power and and have a chance to do things. And there are certain things that we got going, programs we got going. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to list them all. But there's one just really simple thing. Not simple, very complicated, actually. But we got going called National Citizen Service, which is basically kind of non-military national service for all Mm 16-year-olds that we... I spent a lot of time designing and piloting, and actually in, in Silicon Valley terms, we would describe as prototyping right. before right. we even got into power. Sure. Um, and that now exists mm-hmm. as a real thing that, right. that you know hundreds of thousands of, of British youngsters are doing every year. So that's just a small example right. of like, wow, you can really make incredible things happen. So of course it was great from that point of view, but I found it unbelievably frustrating because in the end, as an advisor, you're not making the decisions. Right, and you don't get to pick. Right, and that's right. That's fair enough because you're not the one who's elected. Right. So I'm, I've got no complaints about it. It's just that I found it very, very frustrating. We're here with Steve Hilton, who is the founder of CrowdPack, and we've been talking about his fascinating history in politics and in Britain. But he came here to Silicon Valley. You came with Rachel, correct? Yes. When she became, she got the enviable job of running <laughs> communications for all of Google. And um, government relations. So you're the husband of Rachel Whetstone. Yeah. That's how I know you. Yeah, and quite right. And so should everyone. The, 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 my favorite... Um, example of that quite correct hierarchy mm-hmm. was when Google brought out their voice, I don't know what to their call voice. it, I'm so untech, yeah. you know, the voice thing, yes. right? Where well, you, you run a tech company, don't say that. But, yes, but you know what I mean, person, yes, you know I know, I mean? yeah, you could care less. Um, and they, I don't have a phone, that's the reason I don't know how to do, mm-hmm. explain these phone related things. I, well, we're going to have to get to that in a minute, um, Anyway, the, <laughs> they just brought out the phone, and she was show, we were with friends, and she was showing off this great new thing, you could talk to the phone, it gives you an answer. So she said, okay, Google, um, who is Steve Hilton? And then the answer came back. Steve Hilton is married to Rachel Whetstone, who is head of government. <laughs> oh, there you are. I know my place. You know it's your place. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, you're trying to like make something of yourself with this uh, with this new company. Explain. Yes. So you came here and you were do, you did a bunch of things. You you went yeah. around and went on like a. Well, I, I should you know thanks to Rachel and her. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing is thanks to Rachel. And first of all, in the sense of the reason we moved here was because um, because of my job in the government and, and in Downing Street. Rachel, when when she was promoted to global head of PR and government relations at Google. She was doing that job from London, Mm -hmm. and that involved not just a lot of travel um, to Mountain View, and the team was there, but actually... She was, you know, the hour, the time difference. Yeah, right. So most, you know, we we had uh, that when when she started that, we had one child, and then we got second. And she was like in the office in London till you know 10 p.m., 11 p.m. every night Mm -hmm. to make the time difference work. And so that just got unsustainable, and so we decided to move. And that was just the beginning of for me of an incredible transformation. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, tr- that is the right word to use, right. you know, having had a pretty stressful, miserable, frustrating time working in government. Which you could have stayed in and been, yes, continued to be Yes, there was no reason, exactly. Yeah. But but actually, coming here was just so amazing. And the th- I hadn't really got a plan as to what I would do next. Mm-hmm. Um, and through various conversations, got to the point of saying, well, there's this place called Stanford University and maybe there's something this I can place. do there. Yeah. And I had no idea. And I'm not a particularly academic person. Mm-hmm. I'm not, okay, I, I literally went to university, but mm-hmm. I'm not you know, right. academic or intellectual in any way. And um, they, I remember there was someone I'd worked with in the Obama administration, a guy um, who had been part of Samantha Powell's national security team. Mm-hmm. And we'd worked on something called the Open Government Partnership, which mm-hmm. was an idea to sort of promote... Um, you know, open data and, and right. as a tool for transparency and fighting corruption around the world. And we worked on that. And I remember when we launched it at the UN General Assembly, there was a party afterwards and I was talking to this guy and he was, I remember him saying, oh, after this, I'm going back to Stanford. He mm-hmm. was an academic. And I thought, well, hang on, wasn't there that guy I met at Stanford? Maybe he can help. Right. And so I literally got hold of him and said, I don't even know what I'm, what I'm really asking, but we're moving over and is there anything I can do at Stanford? I don't know right. what I mean by that question. Right, right. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, we get people like you the whole time. Yeah, Leave yeah, uh, night and day. Yeah, exactly. And so he just, it was amazing. He set up for me um, a few few weeks later, a, a kind of two days of, you know, meeting everyone around the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it was like a sort of matchmaking thing, you know, do we like each other and whatever. And I ended up, as a result of all of that, doing two things uh, when we moved, which one was teaching um, in the public policy mm-hmm. department, a kind of class, which was a pretty um, straightforward class on how to make change happen in government, how, how government right. works, that kind of sort of practical aspect of government. But the really amazing thing was that they uh, generally connected me with uh, the D-School. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the famous D-School Design School. The famous institute, uh, I think, let's give it its proper name and Mm -hmm. acknowledge the sponsor, the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And it was, that place is incredible for those those listening who aren't familiar with it. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is just such an incredible, unique, well, it's not literally unique because it's been copied a lot. Right, absolutely, um, but a lot of big internet. Yeah, and and basically what the D-School does for those who don't know is is really um, apply the methodology, which would be incredibly familiar to anyone who works in tech, that kind of basic process of really understanding users, rapid uh, prototyping, testing, iterating around a product idea. That, that What the D-School does is teach that approach and that methodology in its purest academic form mm-hmm. and apply it to different contexts and different settings. Right. So each class at the D-School takes that design thinking or human-centered design, whatever you want to call it, that methodology, and says, right, let's apply that to redesigning you know, our lunch or whatever it may be or, mm-hmm. or, how, or how we think about healthcare. And they've never really done anything... Um, connecting that to public policy. So mm-hmm. they're excited about working with me on that, and we put together a class. And in order to teach that, obviously, I had to learn it. So I went through the process of learning about design thinking. And that was just, that was the moment, I think, that I realized this is what I want to do next. And I want to apply this to the field that I'm experienced in and have knowledge on, which is politics and government. And that really took And me. you're in the center of Silicon of Valley. Of course. And th- here I am. Is, I know it's a total cliche, but like, what am I going to do if I don't do a startup? Like, I'm you're a complete right. jerk. You know? Right, right. You have to. Um, not, uh, what's it called? What's the new you're phrase? like hanging out with like Larry Page and people like that, right? Like, so they're like, what do you do? Exactly. And if you can't say I run a startup, then you're just, you know. You're nobody. Exactly. Nobody. So explain the idea behind CrowdPack. So the, the, I was thinking, well, how can tech help? Uh, what, what's the what, what can what is the pro, what what problem in the way politics works could tech maybe do something about? Right. And after thinking about that a bit, I and actually reflecting on on what had gone wrong in my view in terms of my experience in government, I actually got to the the point of money in politics because money I think underpins a, a huge uh, proportion of of what's wrong with politics in mm. the sense that the need to raise money, whether that's huge amounts of money. Um, as is needed in the U.S. to run for federal office, mm-hmm. or even small amounts at the state level, or smaller amounts as as are true in the U.K. because there are caps on spending. Nevertheless, you've got to raise money mm-hmm. to do your basic campaign, and and typically that forces you uh, to to do things and say things yes, and be committed act. to positions. Right, and right. That, exactly. That, that actually not necessarily what you believe, but you mm-hmm. sort of you know really keeps in place these structures of politics, whether that's the the traditional parties, right. Or an obligation to the donors, whether that's you know businesses and, and billionaires right, it, it on sort the right, of suggests corruption right from the start. Yeah, or, or on the and it's not a partisan thing. It's the same with you know the influence of the public sector unions on the left and whatever. Whatever you look at it, you know it's, it's forcing candidates. So that when they by the time they get to positions of of elected office and power, they they're so constrained in what they right, can and do. Compromise exactly. So I thought, well, let's try and do something about that. So my very first um, notion was, well, what if we could create a crowdfunding platform for politics that would mean that. Um, Candidates could raise money from a much broader group so they're not dependent on the same old donors and actually create some kind of political marketplace so that citizens could find candidates that, that match their priorities their and right. actually support them and get involved that way. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as a kind of and, – and also somewhere that would really help outsider candidates, people who are completely – you know, not part of the old system, not the inside is going right. to run for which office. Which you were talking about earlier when we were originally talking about this. Yeah, so that the was idea the idea. Outside of pre-Trump, it was kind of the Very same. much so. This was like 2013 when I was just right. sort of, you know, um, trying to figure all this out. And then in the way that happens here in this kind of slight magic way, I met someone from NEA, the venture firm. Um, we got talking. He said, that's very interesting. Why don't you come and uh, Pitch. Work, work? Well, not before that. It was actually work on it here. They, they, I got a oh, gig there as an EIR. Enterpri- yeah, Enterprise. Entrepreneur residence, yeah. And EA, which was brilliant. You know, I mean, all this, I make it, it just, just an incredible. This could never have happened in the UK. I mean, yeah. There is Why something. Not? Because you just don't have that ecosystem, yes. the attitude, yes. yeah. the open, the whole thing is just a re. I mean, I remember working in the UK government trying to boost the UK as a, as a center for tech. Tech. And we did all these kind of technical stuff like entrepreneur visas and tax breaks for early stage investment, all that kind and of stuff. And open government. All that, exactly. Data, exactly. All those things. But the thing that we, and, and let's, you know, even the, the role of Stanford, we're trying to copy that UCL in London. But 
it's this culture, this mm-hmm. kind of helping each other culture. I know that you know, Silicon Valley gets a bad rap, and I, you know you know this better than anyone. But honestly, it was just this incredible thing it's where different people sure. want to help you, right? And maybe they, you know, it help. And I understand that that's also to a certain extent. Um, keeps it the way it is because they mm-hmm. help people who are like, are like them. So I totally right. get that. And I think we need to sort of broaden that out. However, I really benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Had this amazing opportunity, um, you know, got together, found uh, co-founder um, Giselle Cordestani, mm-hmm. who's, who's, who's a, uh, you know, leads Worked on the business Google. side. Exactly. That's how we met because she was a colleague of Rachel's. Um, Adam Bonica at Stanford, um, who's a, the leading kind of US expert on um, political data and, and, and campaign finance. And we kind of put it all so together. What are you doing now? What does it do? Explain. I think what we, the way I, I you tell put out the, a lot of data. You definitely. Yeah, I think the way I tell the story is that is that we launched in 2014 for the mm-hmm. for the midterm elections, and uh, you know as as you'd want to see um, happen with it with a tech firm, um, and as I learned at the D school, we we did a bunch of experiments. We tried out different things, um, including a focus on data and giving people objective data on candidates and helping them w- figure out who to vote for. Um, we created crowdfunding platforms. We, you know, we tried out various things to see right. what, what, uh, what users would respond to. And basically over that cycle, over, over the last you know, two years, we, we got to the point where now we're really clear about what we mm-hmm. want, what we think Crowdpack is and what the potential it has. And, and the way I describe it now is, we really see Crowdpack as the future of political organizing and fundraising. Mm-hmm. It's the place where you would go to take political action, to organize a community behind any kind of political or issue-based um, so it's uh, not campaign. just candidates. It's, it's not just that's a really important right. distinction. So yes, you we were are, doing that a little bit when you from your earlier stuff. That's right. So this could so you could go to Crowdpack right now, um, and uh, you'll see there. I mean, we just launched, a, for example, this this week with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he was our launch user for mm-hmm. our new communities product, which is all based around the issue of gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. So that's he's not tr- running for office himself, right. but he wants to lead an effort to um, get redistricting on the ballot in th- in the 37 states where you can do that, and then right. to fund legal challenges to gerrymandered and get that district, funded and get that funded and all goes right across the country, and and that is all held in this. He's created a community in the platform, in the platform called Terminate Gerrymandering, which right. people and so we and and. You, you, I mean, literally, we we created one for you on mm-hmm. the issue. You know, such a good example mm-hmm. on diversity in tech, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a perfect example of how the tool can be used. You can you can put together in one place, you can show content, um, you can raise money, you mm-hmm. can call your representative, you can organize events. It's just the pl- and it's an open platform. That's a big difference with what else is out there. In right. This so kind there's of pl- been a lot. There's change. There's all kinds of yeah. Like, there's lots of different. But what ways we've tried to, to is look at what users are saying about what they're looking for and what what works and what doesn't and i think one of the most important things is is something that's really simple and easy to use and does all the things that organizers want Mm -hmm. um and so that's really what we've tried to build right but this is the very first version why has politics two things politics and healthcare have been just like they don't respond to the the internet until trump really with the twitter stuff which we'll talk about in the next section but what is the problem with politics, it's still so retail. I don't know how else to put it. Like it's still so yeah, I mean, that's analog. The, that totally. I think that it's just been. I think maybe one of the things is that 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 there's a kind of political establishment which includes the the the, the people who've been involved in you know campaigns and so on. They're very East Coast based, mm-hmm. and it's just been old. You know. That kind of thing. Now, and and there have been efforts um, coming out of here and elsewhere to try and, you know, I hate that overused term, but, you know, disrupt politics, Mm rethink how it works. And I think the problem is that that many of them have, uh, they they, they haven't quite sort of got to the heart of of how we affect the actual political system. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, politics and government, you know, there there is something called the constitution. It defines how it works. There is a Mm -hmm. certain set of things that you have to really understand. And that's why I wanted to kind of build something that would enable people to participate, but through the system that we have, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in the end, it's democracy, and you, there are elections, and there are ballots, and you've got to, you know, mm-hmm. understand how that all works, sure. rather than pretend that you can completely make that go away, mm-hmm. and invent some whole new thing through tech that replaces sure. the system. So I right. think we've tried very hard to work within the system. Um, 
I don't know. We'll see. I mean, we're having an amazing, you know, response right now. Mm-hmm. We've got incredible stories. Like, like just recently, one of the things that that um, remember I said I really cared about trying to create something that make it easier for outsiders to run for office to make it simple. Sure. To take that first step, one of the tools that we've really focused on there um, is start running. And as its name suggests, mm-hmm. it's it's just a really you know, literally anyone uh, listening to this can start running like now mm-hmm. without actually. You know, thinking of all the off-putting barriers, like do I have to hire a campaign right, manager? Right, right. Do I need a website? Do I have to register with whoever the hell you know, mm-hmm. etc. No, you don't have to do any of that. You can go to crowdpack.com, start running, and you can create a page in minutes that is your um, fundraising page, and you can start cr- uh, collecting pledges. People can pledge to your mm-hmm. campaign, and their cards are only charged. If you run, mm-hmm. it's a, just a brilliant way for people to take sure. the first step if they've never done it before, just to see if they have the support. And we had an amazing story of that this year, uh, which was Kathy Allen from Utah. She uh, went on the Women's March. She mm-hmm. got really kind of inspired right. and mobilized. She'd seen right. at some event, she'd seen a presentation about CrowdPack, mm-hmm. never got involved in politics before. She's a doctor in Utah. Uh, mm-hmm. In Jason Chaffetz's district, mm-hmm. she um, oh, let's get him. well there you are, and then and she said you know what, and then she'd done a few things actually. She literally sent a change the petition about mm-hmm. healthcare or something. No, then never went to went to the town hall meeting he was at mm-hmm. and got you know a bad reaction. She didn't really feel that she was getting anywhere. So you know what, I'm gonna I'd heard about this crowd pack thing. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna right. see if I can start running. She creates right. a page, gets quite a good uh, you know little boost of donations just from her network. Mm-hmm. We do some uh, help her with some press for the local media. She it goes up. She's kind of raising quite a bit of money, about mm-hmm. 20 grand. Then um, she, uh, Jason Chaffetz makes this remark about the smart. Do you remember he said this thing about mm-hmm. if you can't afford health care, maybe, yeah, yeah, you, maybe, maybe don't buy another smartphone. So, so like that, you know, she's in his district. Right. So that, that gets uh, gets her a big boost. We um, Mike.com do a piece on it. Mm-hmm. Um, she's up to about 80000 Wow. Dollars. Mm-hmm. Never done politics before. Right. Um, then she says, you know what? I'm going for it. You know, because she sees she's got this right. support. So it gives her that confidence to say. Right. So then she converts her, her crowd pack to campaign to, from pledges to I'm in, to- I'm running. All that money then turns over, you know, instantly into the donation. She has a, she's sitting on a and pot of money. And it's done correctly in the way that needs Yes, we do all the back end and the reporting and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. We have advisory opinions from the FEC. That's another, you know, we've done all that yeah. fiddly work that needs yeah. to be done. And then Rachel Maddow does a segment on it. Right. This woman who's never done politics before, the last time I looked, she's just burst through 500,000. She's at half a million dollars. Right. She's running so she's against Jason. She's got the money. She's part. got the money. And it's one of the fun, she's raised more money in the shortest space of time than most people run for Congress. Sure, sure. And it's just such a, look, there are some unique circumstances around that. I'm not pretending right. anyone who starts a crowd pack page is going to get to sure, half a million sure. dollars. However, it's possible. It, it shows you you can do it. Well, you can see that through the indie funding and stuff like that. So how do you make But money? we can do it for you. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, as you oh, said, I'm you're, signing up. Nick. Well, we've done it already. So you go to crowdpack.com, Cara. Oh. And there you are. You can oh, literally, right. everyone listening can pledge now. Oh, my God. Right all right. Now. I didn't even know that. It's just been done. All right. Well, thank you. To okay. honor this occasion. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Crowdpack.com, um, sure, Cara. I'm sure it's totally legal. Um, so <laughs> that's all right. It really isn't. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping to go to jail someday on all this stuff. Yeah. But that's um, once, once you get there, you can do all the yes, stuff that takes you to right, jail. Th- yes. Of course. Well, I plan on it. I plan to go down in flames. <laughs> it's my entire. I'm going to rise and then fall. Well, it looks like you might have a good role model for that. But you I'll know, be like lots. 80 by then, and so it'll be like <laughs> just tragic and fantastic. So, um, a fantastic political story. But how do you make money then? What do you? What do you? So we. Um, it's it's through um, a percentage on transactions. I see. So if as you have to pay for the privilege of raising money via you guys. Uh, that's right. But it's right. but it's uh, you you 100 of the money goes to the candidates. So mm-hmm. you, so it's like it's actually voluntary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tip model. Oh, a tip model. Interesting. Yeah. And do you expect this to be a do you expect to add things to it political consulting? Because that's really where it gets confusing. No, we, no, 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 no. We we're, we're a platform for participation. So you so it's really we're nonpartisan, completely open. Right. You, it's just for everyone to get involved. Right. Um, and and not just in the U.S. I mean, we've launched in a small way in the U.K. and in France. There's an exciting election going on right now. And your conceptual idea is you want more people to run. You want people. We definitely you do. don't like the people that are in politics on either side. Yeah, I mean, remember that you know, for example, just let's just take the U.S. Mm-hmm. You've got, I mean, everyone th- focuses on the presidential and so mm-hmm. on, but and actually, mayoral races get a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But one of the most important bits of the political system that gets hardly any attention is state legislatures. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you look at what for everyone listening, if you think what affects their life in terms of yeah. health services and social and, and education, a lot of that is done at the state legislative level. I think it's not like sixty odd percent of state legislative. 
seats are uncontested. Mm-hmm. No one's running. Mm-hmm. And that's why you get these duffers, these useless people just get re-elected by default year after year. Another great example is that guy, the, the Stanford rape case, Aaron, mm-hmm. what's his name, Persky, mm-hmm. um, that got a lot of attention quite rightly last year. Um, that guy, that judge, that's an elected position. Right. He's been, as it were, elected unopposed, I think, you know, four times in a row. No longer. No one, well, no one knew that. I mean, right. no, there's no attention on this right. stuff. Right, there's not. Yeah, no and, Americans and, have the and, privilege of ignoring their whole electoral system. Well, that's why, you know, a combination of data and these simple tools, we really genuinely want more people to Do get involved. Do you want more young people to be involved? Yes. Because this is the whole point, is how Definitely. to get them Definitely, like they and do that, hashtagism. There's all the jokes around that, and yeah, but getting people to be involved is super hard. Well, that honestly is a real focus of what we're doing from a design point of view. Is like, okay, how do we, how, you know, we don't want to minimize it. We don't want to kind of make it so kind of simplistic that it's not real, you know. That, that, but but we are trying to make it simple and easy and work on your phone and all that kind <laughs> of stuff, just to understand, you know, how how people think about it. And actually, the truth is that. People really are engaged. They do care about issues. They, they care do. probably about issues People more than... People have not been more engaged than ever around this election. Exactly. And kids, all they do is talk politics almost continually. It's fascinating. Yeah. So we're going to talk about where that's all going. Yeah. So you also have a show on... Five. What is? Tell me about this. So that's like, totally... Uh, you're a big Trump supporter, aren't you? Random. Well, I, here's how I used to put all it right, in the election. So I'm a tr- I support, which makes you like a unicorn in Silicon Valley. I support Valley. Trump supporters. That's the, that's the oh, sort all right, of my okay. kind of all right. uh, way I describe Even it. the really awful ones? But okay, go ahead. The, the, even the deplorable ones. Okay, deplorable ones, yeah. You've got it. I mean, come on. I know. Um, I think that... Uh, I think There's that deplorables on all sides. There you go. Mm-hmm. I think we can oh, agree yes. about that. Yeah. I think that... Um, well, the Fox... It was, okay, guess this is what happened. Um, Brexit happened last year. Right. I've always been... You thought that was going to happen. I think we did. Yeah, I did, yeah. and I wanted it to happen. And right. in fact, I went back to the UK mm-hmm. and campaigned for Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was part of my book that I, you know, the, sure. the, that came out more in, in the UK. And that put me on the other side of it from David Cameron. Right. And that was interesting in itself, but there we are. You know, I'd worked with him. And you were very close for friends. it because? Because I've always believed that, um, that I, I just hate the centralization of power. I think one of the big things that's gone wrong over the last sort of few decades is the centralization of power, economic so power, all those political Brussels. power. Yeah, and, and you know, I found, you know, in, in, even working in government, for example, one thing that I, I mean, every single day, there was something we were trying to do that was blocked by EU regulation. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in the US, you know, they, they you know, they, they sort of think of the EU as basically another kind of European version of NAFTA. It's just mm-hmm. a tree. It's so much, that's the, I we're, would. We're I, used to the states. That's why. That's yeah, it, but a state within the US. Is not a nation. A state, no, a state within the US actually has much more autonomy. Mm-hmm policy autonomy than a member state of the EU. Mm-hmm. There's really, for example, employment law, you can, there's all sorts of examples of that. Um, I mean, you know, I, I remember being really shocked that I, one of the things I really, I, the fa- family policy is a big sort of, uh, I care about a lot. And um, I think it's the foundation of a lot of things that have gone right in terms of poverty and inequalities, like is, is family policy not being done right. Um, and one of the things I was trying to argue for and make happen in the UK was shared parenting mm-hmm. right? and, and, and specifically shared parental leave. We had a kind of completely distorted parental leave system mm-hmm. where basically the, the, so, the sort of, you basically had a, a year for mothers and two weeks for fathers. Mm-hmm. Now I know that some people say, well, at least that's something, at least in the US mm-hmm. there's nothing. Um, but that was really distortive and actually very unhelpful for women in the mm-hmm. sense that an employer would say, well, if I hire you and you're gonna have a kid that's like a year, right. well, I'll just take the guy because it's only two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I really wanted to equalize, I wanted to equalize that mm-hmm. and have t- totally the same um, expectation for a man and woman on the, on the grounds of gender equality. That was something that was blocked by EU regulation. Like mm-hmm. why, what's it got to do that? Right. So I just so like- So you were pro-Brexit. Exactly, anyway, that, and so I, was, I for the first time actually, um, I'd come out from behind the scenes i was actually right on tv making arguments mm-hmm. rather than being this kind of shadowy weird advisor that went around <laughs> on a bike and you know, no shoes no shoes all that stuff right right, right. and now here i was that, actually that real you know where, where yes no it's yes no, they're off right i see yeah but the um so and, and actually you know, i thought I, I like this i right. like making my own arguments saying what right. i think rather than right. just just being get out the front scenes. of it and Stop then whispering that what, um, this is a very long-winded way of answer, answering your Fox question, which is that then they, they they were quite interested in Brexit. I did a few things with Fox, also around the time my book came out here, mm-hmm. and just did more with Fox. And they and and that and then that happened. So, what do you mean by last. the next revolution? Well, the next revolution is the name of the show. It starts right, in, I got that, in a couple what, of what weeks. What do you mean by it? What or I really want catchy name. 
Well, I hope it's catchy, but I think the the idea is uh, to f- focus on. I've I've thought really hard about what what I how to define what I want to argue for, mm-hmm. um, and the phrase I've got to is positive populism. Okay. And I know that the word populism in many they hear that and think that is just horrible. That's bad. Right. Everything we hate. Yeah. I think that there it's are not a goose I, stepping, but go right ahead. there yeah. you go. And I think that there's a lot of the elements of. And actually, this this is not just a Trump thing. It's also Bernie Sanders. I I, I had a lot of time yeah, for his similar. message. I really, really. I remember when he declared. A lot of people mocked him. Oh, the ridiculous guy, this old man standing on the steps, mm-hmm. whatever. I remember watching him, steps of Congress doing his announcement. How amateur! He's never, not got a chance. Mm-hmm. I remember watching him that first Sunday as on the George Stephanopoulos show, and I just thought, wow. That mm-hmm. message is absolutely right. brilliant. Yep. You're going to do so well. I really liked a lot of his message. <laughs> and and the overlap, I guess, between Sanders and Trump, which you might describe as a focus on working people and then he's not the elite and the, and the rich. Um, concern about the way that the political system has been captured by big donors. Um, focus on the, on the sort of economic crisis that's affecting so many people. That I think is is is, is that should be the focus of this administration, and I would describe that as positive populism, just doing things that help working people. Well, what about the negative part? There seems well, to be I, quite a bit of it, right? And uh, and I don't want, and that's why I want to argue. How for do the you positive avoid part. that? Well, by focusing on the positive. I and mean, we've got say- the Woody Guthrie populism, which is always lovely to hear those songs, but, you know, it does degenerate into ugliness immigra- around immigration, around, and this is something that Silicon yeah. Valley, I just love, I'd love to get your thoughts on why that happens, and then what is a place like Silicon Valley, which is the coastal elites, yes. 100% defined, do about that? Because they're not simple people. Well, people. I think that the, the, the real, you know, okay, the, the kind of core question is, and this is like really big, you know, about what's the trends in the economy, automation, and, and so on. It's right. like, what do we do to improve the productive capacity of everyone so that they are of value to an employer or have the tools to, you know, start right. their own businesses? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I do think tech companies and clever people around here can help with that. Mm-hmm. You know, how, and, and I think some of that already is happening, you know, in terms of rethinking the school system, mm-hmm. um, rethinking how training is being delivered, companies like Udacity and mm-hmm. others. You know, I just think there's a, there's a lot you can contribute. That, that's the real question. It's not about what do we think about H-1B visas or whatever. You know, that's like trivial in comparison to the, the, the reality that you've got a huge proportion of Americans who are really, you know, Screwed by Untrained. their, their Unab- inability to be productive, and 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 so that is the heart. And, and and now the causes of that are multiple and include, like we were talking about earlier, family. You know, family break breakdown, the way kids are sure. raised, parenting. There's a lot again there that that I think business can contribute to. Going right back to what I was earlier, we were talking about mm-hmm. when I was at Good Business, mm-hmm. when I ran this company, Good Business, and started that to try and harness the social power of brands to to do good. A lot of this uh, is very deep and has been going Absolutely. on for decades. Yeah. And um, particularly in relation to sort of, you know, raising children and, and, and all the evidence now about how what happens in the early years before Adverse they even get to school. Adverse childhood experiences. Right. All of that. I write about all that. I know, that, you know, that I'm, this is my mm-hmm. real passion, actually. That's what I really, really focus on in government. And I think that business can make a big contribution there, so is, especially from, from around here where technology but can... But is it their responsibility? I mean, you know, someone's saying you should move an Apple factory into Kansas or Kentucky or whatever. Well, they built it here, or they built it wherever. Do they ha- are they really responsible just because they created innovation? To I mean, I don't feel like it's Silicon Valley's fault that Detroit failed. It's no, Det- no, you I know what I mean. You. Like, but I now, agree with you. But I mean, I think they're do all- they have to move to Detroit, or can they look? This is where we created. Well, it's, promise. A, it's, a, it's a question of policy, right? right? And the incentives can be you know, so. For example, Apple, um, they were. T- I think it's Brazil and India mm-hmm. both said, unless you build your factories here. Um, unless you tell Foxconn to build the factories here, we're going to put a hundred percent tariff on your products. Right. They did, right? And and it was when that you know. So in, in Brazil, for example, when you had all the iPhones coming in through you know the like, you know, grey market through Miami right. or whatever the hell was going on, then finally they relented and said, okay, we'll build a damn factory there. Right. That pressure worked. The go- you know. Do you so, think that's important for tech companies to do that? Like from a political no, but I, point I think of view? that I think that, that you know in the end, no, I think that it's the responsibility of the political system to. to so what can the political system do? Because tech. Number one is one of our greatest industries in this country. It's the yes. one that's actually successful that we that seems to be yeah. continuing to be successful despite incursions from China and other countries. You know, if you're the political advisor to tech, they were super slow off the mark with Trump. Then they looked acquiescent. Then they got mad. 
it seems like there, and then there's all these people now from Mark Pincus with his WTF organization, and you've got uh, Sam Altman doing a bunch of yes. stuff. Every day I meet with some other dot-com billionaire who wants to start their own pack. It seems somewhat dissipated and very well, soft. I, tell you what, I, think I don't the, know what else to No, I get it. I think that one of the things I really, I think the real uh, answer lies in how you started the question, which is like, actually, it's a really successful industry. Mm-hmm. It's just that the success is very... Uh, is located in a very particular place, and we're going to spread it. So I think one of the things I've seen that I like the most is Steve Case's thing. He's mm-hmm. doing, which is I, like the, I agree the, with you. Third the, wave. The, the rise. No, the rise, the, the rise, rise of, of the rest, rest right? Yes. I think that's very cool. And he's and he's hired J.D. Vance to mm-hmm. go and spot opportunities yep. in um, J.D. Vance, who's part of yes. Peter Thiel's okay. world. Hillbilly um, And he is going to Ohio to you know see if we can he's from. bring some of that there, for example, mm-hmm. and other places. So I think that's an example of... Of, and, and, and there are others, you know, there's, there's been some really interesting research about college towns. And there's this sort of image that we have, I think, of everywhere in the middle of America is a total disaster. And you've mm-hmm. got this sort of booming coast. It's like really overstated within the yes, absolutely. within the within the center center of that country. You've got lots of pockets of actually really interesting stuff mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and one uh, piece of research I saw that was really interesting on that was the where, where you've got a college town, where you're not some famous you know, right. university, but just a college, an institution of, of learning, and then uh, a mayor or lo- local government that kind of understands how, how the world works, putting that together with a local employer to create modern manufacturing, 3D print. You know, actually, there's really cool stuff happening. Right. And so I think that the that that is the answer, is actually sustainable job creation and innovation outside of these kind of places where everything's booming. Except that a lot of the new stuff is all pointing to joblessness, uh, self-driving cars, automation. Yeah, but that, I don't buy that argument. I mean, yes, that's yeah. true of, of certain kinds, but I think that um, equally uh, new jobs are being created. And, it's a, and you know, I believe in that cycle. I think that innovation will lead to new, better jobs. Yes. Is it Silicon Valley's responsibility to do that? No, but I think that the... No, not in that sense, but okay. I think I think it's responsibility. And I thought about a lot about this when I was, um, you know, when my business was corporate responsibility. I think it's got a responsibility to treat to to, be, to do the things it does right. in a responsible, ethical way. It's not its responsibility to solve all the problems of the world. But I think that um, that's where government can be smart in terms of incentives and and creating a regulatory framework that makes it easier for right. companies to start. So and, how do you assess the... Trend? And I think the new jobs will... You know, I think that, that you, a lot of the jobs that are disappearing, you kind of want them to disappear. Yeah, They're not great do. jobs. I mean, yeah. why do we want to hang on to some of these menial right. jobs that actually the people yeah. that do them, yes. obviously they, they, need, they appreciate the money, but actually if we can try and, you know, th- think about the future as jobs that people really want to do and they're, and, they're, and they're rewarding. The other thing I think is really interesting to look at here is, is entrepreneurialism. I think that... Right. You can't and, teach uh, that. You can, can you? I well, mean, you, that's you the You definitely issue. can. I mean, you what, can because... And that's what we're seeing, at, you know, like, the, like you know, the, I, again, write about this in my book, but uh, Sal Khan, who started the Khan Lab School mm-hmm. where my kids go to school, that's a brilliant example of that, where, mm-hmm. where you know, he's really rethinking the whole model of the school. Oh, precisely. I think if you're not entrepreneurial, you're not going to make. If you don't, if we don't yes. teach entrepreneurism to everybody, yeah. like the idea of being entrepreneurial or having responsibility. I think the most effective part of J.D. Vance's book was his time in the military. I thought was really interesting, interesting. which yeah, yeah, got yeah. him. He never learned responsibility. He never learned how to wear a suit. He never learned. Yeah. And instead disdained it rather than understood that it was part of a social compact that you had to learn certain behaviors yeah. and not just pick up butter with your hand or whatever he was talking about that yeah, like yeah, yeah. He, he was insulting a butter knife until he was like oh okay or like you know his, his first move was attack um which is yes. a really interesting thing so w- how do you assess the trump administration what they could do now how do you assess the first well, the reason 100 that, days well the reason that i in the end came down on his side in the election not that i could vote mm-hmm. i'm still on a green card and i vote but um the in the end i thought it's it just it's kind of really um you know, I can't just sort of duck out of this. I have to. I, I had. I had this very strong view that whilst I didn't recognise in what he was saying an agenda of the kind that I would want to see implemented right. in terms of positive populism, dealing with some of these things, on a very basic level, I thought it's more likely if he was elected that we'd get faster economic growth, and at the very least, that would start to lift mm-hmm. people up uh, who are in real so economic what could he crisis. Do? So he's that's not why a friend of Silicon Valley at this point. I think Although the, maybe the that only might thing change. that really matters mm-hmm. is that he takes action that gets the economy moving in just a broad brush way, raises the growth rate, and I think that the components of that 
are basically the the things that are being discussed, but are look like they're nowhere on the horizon, which is tax reform and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's another example where if you know that is something where you could get bipartisan consensus in Washington, but they mm-hmm. don't seem to be. No, you know the, the choices so they've what's made. What's gone wrong so far? I think the choices they've made up till now yeah. have made that less likely. Why are they making these choices? I don't know. I truly don't know. I've not no connection with them. I think that what was what you know what I rem- I I had this view that maybe maybe say you know a naive hope that actually he really would arrive there and be a completely different kind of leader than we've seen before not republican not democratic like like a populist but a po- of a yeah. positive kind that would be able to unite uh, not everyone, but, you know, a vast bulk of the Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats behind an agenda with one focus, which is jobs and the economy. That's the big crisis. Let's just focus on that. Let's not worry about everything else for the time being. Let's just do stuff that right. gets the economy moving. I think he's just about still got a chance to do that. Right. It's, it's the diminishing. The narcissism is so massive. It's diminishing the chance to actually do that I think it's the narcissism. It's the uh, massive narcissism is just so Well, a, a lot of people... <laughs> it's vast. It's, it never ends. The, the, the tw- what do you think of the tweeting? Like, would you allow any of your candidates to do stuff like that? Well, I, do you think it's effective or just crazy at this point? I think that there are elements of it that uh, are brilliant. Well, no question. Well, also that sometimes it is useful to just say this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you've got to be much more judicious about how you use right. it. Right. Right. So, so I wouldn't stop doing it, but I would focus it on productive ends. Right. You know, to advance policy or, well, that, that's it really. I mean, that's, the, that's what he's Not there to Not to yell do. at Arnold Schwarzenegger, in other words. Well, you know, I'm very pro-Arnold at the moment because he very right. kindly um, well, used, Donald used, is not. used yeah. our uh, used a crowd pack communities to launch his uh, right. terminate gerrymandering campaign. Right. So we're big terminate. Arnold fans. He has that, to do that the rest of his life, doesn't he? I know, he, he does. Yeah. And, and so we're big Arnold fans. So what fans. would you do if you were, if you're Silicon Valley, how do you interface with the Trump administration? You have Elon yeah. Musk on one hand where he thinks he can influence him and, and for the better for, around climate change and all kinds of important issues to Elon. And then you have others that are like, no way, this is not, you know, this we're not joining this American invasion. We're going to oppose mm-hmm. on immigration. We're mm-hmm. going to be in the employee base of Silicon Valley is very Bernie Sanders, like yeah. around immigration, around these issues that just trans, even transgender bathrooms. You know, this is something Silicon Valley has gone out on a limb. A lot of these social issues and it's one after the next that they seem at cross purposes and at the same time need the FDA that's more progressive. They yeah. need a, a business environment that, that, pushes self-driving cars and infrastructure that will help yeah. that and, and around health. All I kinds think the of big thing, I, I actually, I don't know. I mean, look, there's the, each company will have its own, you know, strategy around lobby, just as with, with any administration, mm-hmm. both federal and state level. There's particular things connected with their business that they, they'll want to kind of argue for, and that will just go on. As an industry, I, funnily enough, I think that the, the what would be really cool would be to see if if, if they could actually get together around infrastructure. That's the one, I think. Yeah, that I would agree. Be because um, cause that that term is used as, hey, we love infrastructure. Of course, who's against infrastructure? But actually, it's not just roads and bridges. No, it's, it's sensors it's like, and roads right, for self-driving right, cars. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, communications networks and, and, and not just rebuilding LaGuardia or whatever, mm-hmm. which isn't happening anyway. You know, so I think that, a, a, like, how do we make America this kind of absolutely world-beating 21st century world. Well, that is incredibly exciting. Right. Right. And Elon and co would be just, that's their, that's what they know. And I think Mm -hmm. if you, and I think that that's the, if they could come together to really put something together that is exciting. I think that's exactly the kind of thing the president likes. He is a really cool, positive thing Mm -hmm. that that will make a difference rather than constantly yelling and complaining. What does Trump have to do, do you think? Well, he he needs to oh, on that question or yeah, the same thing on the opposite version. Well, I think he needs he needs to um, really. I, I tell you one thing. I think he really needs to is ignore the Republicans in Congress. The Republic. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that's, that's gone wrong. Is that he was elected as a different kind of right. politician, not basically an independent, not right. Republican at all. And yet, I think very quickly the kind of tentacles of the of the kind of Republicans in mm-hmm. Congress with their all their kind of ideological Fighting. obsessions and, and in fact exactly have kind of got hold of the administration. And I think that right. that's what clearly went wrong with the healthcare thing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's got to ignore them. And so now the a, Democrats don't want to play with Well them. that's right. And so I think this is ass. the thing that's right. You know right. I mean? So but I think there is Why a chance Why would they help him? 
Well, because I think they get that, what they want. I guess. Well, in the end, that, uh, there's a deal to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he needs to do it and not 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 think that it can happen with with Paul Ryan and his. Do you gang. think uh, Bannon's on his way out? I don't know. What do you think of him? I'm curious. I think he's very. I, I think he's a really interesting character, mm-hmm. and I find myself re- when I when I've read some of the things he said, mm-hmm. um, and and looked, I, I found myself in real agreement over some of them, mm-hmm. where he's talking. For example, I that, that I mean, he very much echoes what I argued in my book. Mm-hmm. He used this phrase, "the party of Davos." Mm-hmm. I mean that that is you know, yep. and I think that that is he's got he's onto something there, which is a sense that for the last thirty years or so. The world has been run by, you know, regardless of who gets elected, right. you've had the yeah. same people in charge, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's kind of bankers and bureaucrats mm-hmm. and accountants, and they've got a technocratic agenda, which is, you know, pro-globalization, mm-hmm. pro-centralization. You know, we are all okay with big mergers and mm-hmm. and automation, and 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 you know, there's there's a, there is an agenda there, mm-hmm. and it and it is uncritical of any of those components, globalization and centralization and so on, and really casual about the human impact of all of those policies right. and i think that that's the good part of 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 what he represents mm-hmm. and i wish that that would actually you know rep- be, be the whole of the no because all the other stuff hangs off of that the conspiracy theory the deep right. state the the global council of jewish people who are out to get us you know the, that all hangs off of it all the time they never disengage from those people which is i think interesting Unless you enjoy them, too. I don't suspect you do, but... Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. So, last question. I think one of the things I think about a lot is that there is a... I think a lot of what's happening is there's a group of people who love the future and have benefited from it. There's a group of people that love the future but haven't benefited and are a little scared of what it's going to do to them. Mm. And then there's a group of people that are just hate the future yeah. have not have gotten badly impacted from it. It's a third, a third, a third in this country. And it's the people in the middle that I think is is where we have to talk to. Because the ones on the end, they're just not going to go along. They're not going to, you mm. know, or, or maybe they have to be pulled along in sorts of ways. How do you mend the gaps? Because it seems, it's, you know, in Europe, everywhere, it seems just yeah. a well, choice I, between, you know, it feels like a choice between Nazis and communists. I don't know how else to, you know what I mean? Like, I think and you're that, sort of... No, stuck. I get it. I think that there's a, you know, there, there, again, not to, to be too repetitive, but I think there's a very basic thing of... of of a faster economic growth will help a lot of these things because the, the, the problem is for a lot of those people mm-hmm. um, that you describe that what you've seen is a, is for them is a total collapse of economic security. It's just when when you're when you're just anxious about money the whole time, mm-hmm. you can't really do anything. Do anything, of course you'll feel. And it's actually you're literally you can't pay a bill if you have mm-hmm. to pay a and, and and even if you get a job you can't live on it. And that's why you have to work all hours. And you can't see your kids. You know the right. whole thing is and a it nightmare. Creates, yeah, it creates and that a is true for a lot of those people. So I think that basic economic growth is is a, is a good start. But I think then. I think the other thing that's collapsed is this sense of, apart from the economic security, is this sense of people con- having c- control over the things that matter to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like, and this is where it gets to the you know the structure of capitalism and the, and companies getting too big, as well as government getting too centralised. It feels like everything is just so bureaucratic, and and you're, some people are making decisions about your community, with the shops that get built, what happens to your, you know, the environment around you, and you have no way of, of influencing it. And, and so I think that decentralization of power, putting power, you know, back in people's hands, decentralizing power to local government, um, you know, really taking a stand against companies that just get too big, trying to localize the economy, I think that all of this... Is part and giving of them it. tools like crowd pack, for example. That's part of it. That really is. That's the bit that we can do something about, which is within the political system. Right. Um, but I think the reform agenda is much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do that, you start to repair the social fabric that has really broken down a lot of these places. You right. know. And so I just saw very clear. You know, in the UK, we try to do a bit of this. You know, if you, if you actually, literally, you know, there are sort of mechanisms you can use that get people together working together, you know, like literally control of the local park rather than some distant right. bureaucratic authority. If they suddenly, if you transfer ownership and they're responsible and they right. can get involved. And it's just so, a stupid example, but there are so many things like that that you can do to give people power and control. And then that is a way of bringing together the social interactions that build community. So very last question, and briefly, because we've got to get going, is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has written about the idea of this collapsed community and the need yeah. to... And, part of what he's done is created the collapse you know can online really help return that or does it just create more isolation if you could give me it's not a substitute for it i think it can help by 
um, like what we're trying to do, give people information and tools to get involved, but then in the, in, then they need to meet in the real world. Right. That's what I'd like like to see happen. And, and, and uh, the tools are there, but in the end... You know that you know I the, I, I called my the book that I wrote was called More Human, right? Designing a world where people come first. The reason I called it More Human because I think the world needs to become more human, and no, that in the end you're going to be a cyborg. I'm sorry, you don't have a phone. You really don't. I don't. Why? We haven't got time for that. Okay, right, I wrote it. about it in the Guardian. Okay, right. you can look it up. I will look it up. <laughs> you just don't have one. I love you for that in a weird way, but well, I hate you at the same time. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Steve Hilton. You're a riveting person to talk to. You should run for office, by the way. Are you gonna run? Oh, you can't. Well, you got to. Well, one day. One day. Okay, I've started a campaign to draft Carlos Richard from Mayor of San Francisco. All right, I am. One day you can. You I know, will. I'm going to appoint you. Oh, I'm, I'm. I'm hiring you. I'm not stupid. I want you to be weird and strange, and then go to jail with me. <laughs> All right, Steve. It was great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, the founders of Crooked Media, and political consultants Juliana Glover and Hillary Rosen, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka, comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thanks to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. <laughs>